Ah, hello, saints of Central Vineyard. Grace and peace to you today. Hey, today I am picking up part two of our series, Community. Uh, today is entitled, Resiliently Building Life Together. Now, if you missed last week, I would really encourage you to go back and check it out. Um, like last week, there is a lot in this one today. So maybe it might be good to have something to take notes on along the way, maybe something on your phone or a notebook. Okay, so here we go, here's part two. For three years, a significant worldwide research project was conducted by the Barna Group, asking millennials, those who are aged between 18 to 35, about their faith in this current cultural moment. Now the research assessed that life in this current cultural moment was that of a digital Babylon. That is, it's a digital age in this greater culture, the dominant power where we are all globally operating within. And it's like a biblical Babylon, which was a culture set against the purposes of God. It's a, a human society that glorified pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Now in our post-Christian secular age, disciples of Jesus and, and Christian community is now like that of Israel where it was exiled to Babylon. Only now it's not a physical space, but a digital one. And it's orchestrated on our screens and on our smartphones. And the church is, it's in this age, is, it's not the dominant power. It's, it's this exiled people within it. And Barna, Barna Group, they wanted to know how millennials were doing at navigating faith in it. Now, now when the recipients were asked how they expressed living out their faith, Here's what the research showed. 38% referred to themselves as prodigals. These are the deconverted who have walked away entirely from any kind of faith. 32% referred to themselves as nomads. Those are the ones who have fallen out of active engagement in church. 22% uh, referred to themselves as habitual churchgoers. Uh, those, uh, these are the ones who go to church but whose life practices don't align with the core beliefs of Jesus' way. 8% referred to themselves as resilient disciples. Those who form richly experienced lives with Jesus, who forge meaningful intergenerational relationships in his church, who develop cultural discernment, and who engage in countercultural mission. At the end of all the research, those were the four sort of groups of people and that's how it was all put together. Now that term, resilient, is really important. And David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock in their book, Faith for Exiles, they reflect on this Barna research project extensively in this book. And they ask what this current reality is doing to the emerging generation's view of relationships. As they are formed in this digital Babylon context, what is it doing to the way we relate to each other? And here, here's, some, here's some pieces of what the authors note. Number one, the emerging generation growing up in this digital Babylon are formed to fear commitment and to place personal autonomy before belonging, relationships, and community. Second thing they say, the social media age of digital Babylon advocates for having a great number of weak relational ties at the expense of a few strong relational ties. Number three, digital Babylon is 
forming the emerging generation in a high performance culture that teaches to put things and to put achievements before putting them before people and community. Number four, digital Babylon erodes social capital, which is the fuel of healthy communities. And fifthly, they say, digital Babylon's failing life script creates in us a lack of personal formation and poor emotional health, which undermines the building of meaningful community. This, the authors, they, they summarize it like this. Those growing up in digital Babylon are becoming more autonomous, less emotionally healthy, and the art of building community is being lost. This is perhaps why sometimes you don't want to go to your circle or that social engagement on a Friday night or why you click maybe to so many Facebook events and if you do click yes, you might bail last minute. You are literally being formed by our wider digital culture in such a way that you cannot handle showing up. We're being conditioned that it is normal to be doing life alone. And the conditioning is winning. People more and more are living alone and in their own personal bubbles. In the EU, the one-person household now outnumbers any other household type. And in Japan and Korea, it's rapidly trending in the same direction. So much so, you can now buy a one-person dining table in furniture stores. And have you caught public transport lately? Have you noticed the way everyone is kind of in their own personal world with their headphones on their head or their earphones in their ears? The global headphone and earphone market is currently worth 22.3 billion US dollars a year with a current and continued growth of 7.9% a year worldwide. Keeping people in personal bubbles is a good way to keep making some money. When I was a teenager, in my parents' church, nearly the entire church went to various midweek Bible studies and shared a midweek meal together. Those who didn't were the minority. Now, in most of the current Western church, ours included actually, less than half are consistently engaged in midweek small groups of community, and that number is only going down further. This means now, the majority of people in Western churches are not practicing a form of being with each other, with other people, in a committed and regular way. But following Jesus is not meant to be done in the way of digital Babylon. It's not meant to be done alone in our own personal bubble. It is not done at a distance or in fear or without belonging. The kingdom of God is likened to this image of a great party with a banquet of guests around a table. It is not one person dining alone at their single person dining table. It's with a number. We are made for a space of belonging and meaningful relationships. And so though our current cultural stage and season might be saying otherwise, we are meant to be doing life together. Now, in a discussion reflecting on community, 
Dallas Willard commented, to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. Uh, Mark Scandretti, in his awesome book, Practicing the Way of Jesus, Life Together in the Kingdom of Love, he similarly says to the same sort of thing as Willard, he says this, we don't enter the kingdom of God merely by thinking about it or listening to one another talk about it. We have to experiment together with how to apply the teachings of Jesus to the details of our lives. We need, to, uh, we need an active learning environment where participation is invited and expected. In John 15, 12 to 13, in the Gospel of John, after teaching on the necessity of abiding with the Father, Jesus then turned that abiding out into action. And he taught this, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no uh, other than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is the top shelf teaching for Jesus. That is the one at the top that's the best stuff. And I, he's made a space of love and belonging. And now go and do that for others. Let's have a look at the rest of the shelves of Jesus' teaching, just to flesh it out a little bit more what living that love looks like. Okay, we seek to have a common attitude towards one another where we, quote, do to others as we would have them do to us, like it says in Matthew 7 verse 12. Uh, we serve one another as Jesus who washed the disciples' feet went on to say, I've washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's what he said in John 13, 14 to 15. Uh, we forgive tenaciously. We, we take Jesus' teaching seriously in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, where he said, If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We, we, we overcome anger. This is classic Sermon on the Mount stuff here in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, where Jesus said that anger is worse than murder. We don't judge. We learn to exercise discernment about trusting people well. Again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that we are not to judge or we too will be judged. We are not to give to dogs what is sacred or pearls to pig. In, in other words, we are to learn to know what treasures of relationship to place where with whom. Now, we become people who seek reconciliation with people who we have wronged. Jesus taught again in Matthew 5, 23-24, Sermon on the Mount, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember that you have something against someone, you need to leave your gift there in front of the altar, go and be reconciled with that person, and then come back and offer your gift. Reconciliation seems to be even more important than glorifying God with an offering. We deal directly with those who have wronged us. Again, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus teaches a paradigm where we are to work with those who, we, who have wronged us rather than triangulating around them, <laughs> talking about them, around them through other people. We keep our promises and we keep our commitments. This is one of the great killers of relationships and community. One of the most needed postures in our current maybe culture is to take seriously the words of Jesus where he said we should let our yes be a yes and our no be a no. Matthew 5 verse 37. That is a profound teaching today. 
commit to a yes, commit to a no. We love our enemies and we bless those who curse us. In communities of belonging, we can be honest about those that we struggle with and our community can help us to turn the other cheek, give a coat and a shirt, like Jesus said in Luke 6, 27 to 30. And finally, we welcome children and we consider how to positively affect future generations. In Mark 9, 37, Jesus said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Those behind us in age are all part of God's alternative family too. You know, these teachings, this, this shelf worth that I've just dumped in front of you, apologies there, if, if you need to kind of refer to those again, maybe check out the written version of this, uh, this talk today. But these are sketches of life lived in the way of that great command of sacrificial love. These are the practices of small deaths, of laying our lives down, and they are actions that tell of a greater trajectory of living out that greatest commandment of love. Not, not just in theory, but in real time. And here's the truth. Here's the truth today. Man, I'm getting a little bit preachy and excited. Here's the truth. None of that can be done alone. Hence why Dallas and Mark said what they said before. To experience the kingdom of God, we must do it with some people. Now, last week I said that in community, you will grow. Maybe now you can see why. Life in an alternative family of God is an invitation to a lot of interpersonal growth and development with people. I wonder, what happens when we get that right? You know, in the book of Acts, the book following the Gospels of Jesus, which then record the actions of the first the first stage of the church, it says in Acts 2, 42-47 that the church was a group of people who had committed themselves to life together in this way of love. They were eating together, studying the scriptures together, praying together, they were sharing their stuff together. We see the early church creating a shared culture, a community of practice where whole life transformation was expected and supported. And we see the fruit of it. This way of life that they lived with others in real time and in real ways is so attractive that it explodes in number. Numbers are daily added to that little life together. What had started as one command from one man was being built into something new, a group of people displaying God's love, like some new temple where God's spirit was dwelling. And years later, after the widest spread of this way of life across the Mediterranean, the Apostle Paul would encourage the Ephesian church with these words, In Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It's Ephesians 2, verse 22. What a portrait of what happens when the church is serious about the community work of intentionally building loving and meaningful relationships. What a picture. But don't forget, we are currently in digital Babylon. We're in a culture that is pushing back entirely on that vision of life and loving and meaningful relationships. And so we need to live in counter formation against its quest for personal 
autonomy. We, we need to be very intentional to live another way. So Mark Scandretti, in this book, he says this, the organic kinship or household structures that were once the context for most people's lives have largely vanished, having been replaced in our society by rugged individualism and the dominance of multinational corporations. And yet, committed, accountable, and interdependent relationships are the enduring context where transformation takes place. The mobility and resulting fragmentation in our society requires us to become more conscious and intentional about sharing life together in the kingdom of love. Now Scandretti goes on to write about the way in which we intentionally choose to share life in something that he calls an experimental group practicing following the way of Jesus. Now the word experimental is important to keep in mind. By this, he does, he does not mean a group that starts to become alternative and weird and unorthodox. He means that the heart of the group, the form of the group, what it does together is to try to do practical things together on the journey of following Jesus, to, to adapt to what is needed in certain moments and to stay humble along the way, remembering we never fully arrive. Now those next words, group practice, Scandretti says, is a commitment to life in a group of about six to 12 people. And his suggestion is the group needs to start off by agreeing on a vow to take, a, a vow of seeking the way of Jesus together and in, in, in which rhythm they will meet. Now, now I know taking a vow might sound a little bit full on for some of us, but again, it's our yes being yes and our no being no. And it's a practice to push against this current formation of anti-committal behaviors that we're all living with. The group then starts its experiment in community, doing things like okay, hearing each other's story around shared meals each week, studying, memorizing the scriptures, learning from the teachings of Jesus, praying together in wide ranges of ways and sharing resources with one another, whether it's money or food, whether it's hospitality in someone's home, tools for projects, babysitting for someone, kid, someone else's kids, volunteering all together at a local food bank. Now, all of this sounds like a great form to practice community. It's in line with scripture and it has all the right priorities in there. Meals, study, prayer, sharing, serving, it's actually pretty easy to do all of those things. The form is not the hard bit. The resilient committing to it is. Which brings me to being intentional about making community. We need some commitments. We need to name the commitments. We need to know the commitments. So today, I want to suggest four things that you need to bring to the surface. Number one, you need to name and know our current culture and what it's trying to do to stop you. That is to stop you having good community. Number two, you need to name and know your personal stage and where you are at. Number three, you need to name and know your life season and the limitations that you might have within that season. Number four, you need to name and know your community 
and who you are going deep with. Naming and knowing something may feel a little bit like insignificant, but I offer this process to you today as a helpful thing to do for three reasons. Firstly, to name and to know is to actually identify what is wrong, what needs to change. Secondly, um, neuroscientists and researchers have documented that our brains are rewired when we learn to name and to know our feelings and our stages. Even at a cellular level, something powerful is tamed and is changed within us when we recognize and identify that something has been mysteriously going on. Thirdly, think of it as navigation. You know, to know where we are going, we must know where we are. So naming and knowing is a form of location, locating. So let's locate a few things, shall we? So here we go, let's go through those four things again. Firstly, we need to name and know our culture. So part of succeeding in building community is first of all this naming and knowing of the cultural stream that we are in. Now today I have been trying to show you what life in digital Babylon and life in this city is like and what it means. It's just simply a fact that all day long you are subconsciously swimming in this digital cultural stream. Your smartphone is discipling you every day. You live and move and have your being in an expensively marketed and globally connected world that is geared towards selling you stuff, enforcing this me first autonomy and undermining your ability to build meaningful community. Day by day, it's all making us less committed to meaningful relationships and belonging and it's wiring us first and foremost towards things over people. A first stage today to deepen community might just be for you to decide whether you're going to keep getting swept along in that stream or get to know the effect of your enemy. Secondly, you need to name, name and know your personal stage. Faith for Exiles in that book named four defining categories from their research. Do you know your current stage of how you would define how you live your faith? Just to remind you, Barna's categories were the de-churched, the nomad, the nominal churchgoer, and the resilient disciple. Now they're by no means the only titles to define your personal stage right now. And there are many other tools that we could use. But if you're being asked the research questions, well, what do you think it would have said of you and yourself and your faith? What one says where you are at? Or maybe even more importantly, what one do you desire? Just let me be clear here for a moment. You know, everyone is welcome at Central Vineyard, no matter the stage that you find yourself in, in those four things. We want to be a safe space for everybody. But, but make no mistake, the goal of what we're doing as a church is for all to become those resilient disciples. Deeply connected, together in loving community, knowing Jesus well. That's what the trajectory of everything we do is aimed at as a church. We are a church who wants to get out of the cultural stream and live in this countercultural way of Jesus. So if you find yourself in the de-churched, the nomad, or the nominal churchgoer categories, you have some changes to make. And we, we lovingly invite you to make them. So come on, you, you can do it. Come along. Now thirdly, we need to name and know our life season. 
And maybe one of the reasons that you aren't able to build community is as simple as you've just become a new mum. <laughs> or perhaps it's because you are currently working nights while at university. Maybe it's because you've just gone through a painful breakup. Now, all of these are the kind of real life situations that are legitimate limitations to why building community is hard. But they don't need to be the reason it doesn't happen. You know, take Mark Scandretti's advice on board and start to view community as a practice of experimenting, something that's more agile, and try get around those limitations that you find yourself in in the season. You know, if you're a young mum, you know, who are a couple of other young mums and a couple of grandmas around you that you could form a new weekly coffee group at a better time during the day? Or if you're unavailable in the evenings because of work or study, could you maybe make up a breakfast meetup with some others who are early risers? Or if you've just gone through a breakup, have you approached a couple of older and wiser saints to help counsel and mentor you, catching up maybe over a drink once a fortnight to be vulnerable with them? Yeah, a season may limit our calendar, it may, it may make us harder, it may make it harder to get to some circles, but that does not mean we just stop. We can get creative. We can find another way to do this. And finally, fourthly, last one, we need to name and know your community. Now the Barna research pointed out about how we are being formed to have lots of shallow tie relationships. As in, we know a lot of names and faces of people, but we don't have many deep tie relationships. As in, the people who will actually show up when we're in need, people we can call for accountability, or people who can help us to discern big decisions in life. So here, here is where we have to get really intentional. Now the Barna Group asked three questions in their research that you might like to ask. The three questions were this, am I loved? Who are my friends? And does anyone care about me? And these questions, along with some other questions that actually fleshed it out a little bit more, found an amazing thing abounded in the data. Resilient disciples had at times up to double the amount of positive responses to these questions than the prodigals, nomads, and habitual churchgoers. This shows life in resilient relationship makes us a more content relational person. This is what the church can do. So, who are you doing life together with? As in, who are they? Take, take a moment to inventory your relationships and intentionally list the names of who you are practicing the way of Jesus in community with. Who are the names of the people on that list? Do you have some? And if you need to find some, one way that you could do this is to sign up for a circle. Give one a try for a couple of months. If you are introverted, this is gonna be a big ask, I know that. But being courageous and placing yourself in spaces to begin to meet some of your brothers and sisters in this family will help you start to move from shallow tie relationships to deep tie relationships. You know, if you've listed a few names down, the next question to ask is, is there a defined commitment between you and them to be in community together? Or is it just sort of passive and floating? You know, have you agreed on a rhythm and are you prioritizing it? You might need to have a conversation with these people that goes something like this. Hey, 
I'm trying to take seriously living in community. And I just want you to know, you're some of the people that I include in that quest. And, I, and here's how I want to be accountable to you in this season. And off you go, chat about it. Now I know this all might sound a bit full on, and the key, the key here though is to set ourselves up well for good community. This is the starting point of naming and knowing who we are doing it with. So naming and knowing our culture, our stage, our season, and our community. It's a powerful inventory to start building community from or to check in with how you're actually going on the journey. And my encouragement is take an hour this week with a journal or with a note and work your way through naming and knowing those areas. All right, let's, let's land this thing. You know, currently, my life is being intentionally lived in community in a couple of ways. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I am a disciple. I don't have just one circle, actually, I, I have a few. Each with a different group of people and some different takes on certain priorities. Now, one of these groups is a group of um, three male friends who during the lockdown August last year, we started to Zoom each other every two weeks to talk deeply, to support one another, to chat through some theology, to check in with each other's marriages, uh, to encourage each other. And several times of those calls, we, we stayed up way too late sharing our hopes for the future, sharing how in many years to come, we were dreaming about being dads who helped in the raising of each other's sons and who were present to each other as we navigated dad life. Now recently, as Gab and I navigated our summer break, where we walked through the unexpected final weeks of my father-in-law's life and the deep grief as he passed away, these were some of the people who showed up the most. They were the people who messaged me, called me, prayed with me, loved me and my family. I sent around epic food. They took Jimmy for a day. And at my father-in-law's funeral, they were the ones who sat in the rows amongst complete strangers to them so that I had their support as I said my father-in-law's eulogy. More recently, Gab and I have been getting our house ready to sell. And these are the mates who showed up to help swing a paintbrush around, do some hard graft, lifting and moving some stuff with me. I'm so grateful that they are who I am tasting this deeper tie with. You know, with them, I'm a disciple a little bit more. I'm not doing life alone. I'm doing it together. You know, this group helps me to push back against this cultural season of autonomy. This group helps me to live more fully in my season of being a dad and being a husband. This group helps me to be a man who's following the way of Jesus. This group is helping me to do life together in this season. And I hope that in some ways I'm helping them in return too. You know, my best experiences of community are not just the attendance of something. They are this much deeper sense that my life is being woven in with others. I love that metaphor of weaving. It's, think of it, a thread. Something single, a strand in nature, is woven up and under. It's woven 
over and through other threads. And as the weaving develops, something that was just one form reforms into being something else. It goes from a thread to a textile. And that's life in community. Life in community is the form of textile. It's life woven in with those who are younger and those who are older than us. Those who are single, those who are married, those who are divorced, those who are widowed. It's life woven in with those who have kids, those who are trying, those who are empty nesters. It's woven in with those who have the holiday house and those who are struggling to make their ends meet. It's woven in with those who have the house with the big lounge and those who are just currently renting a room. It's woven in with those who have faith to move a mountain and it's woven in with those who just need help with their unbelief. It's woven in with those who want to know Christ well, those who have just started those who want to know him more. That is the space of being woven into community. A choosing to resiliently be connected in love, learning to love and receiving love in all of those ways with all of those kinds of people. As Ephesians 2 verse 22 put it so wonderfully, in Christ you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We're being built together. And so Central Vineyard, may we, while in this larger cultural season, whatever stage and whatever personal season you find yourself in, may we resiliently build our lives together.